Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, it's Parker Muzzerall here from Toronto, Canada. Currently I'm sitting on the cliffs of the Portuguese coastline near Cabo de Roca, drinking some red wine and staring out at the Atlantic Ocean. I just want to say thanks for everything you do and uh, you've been a big inspiration to beat to my own drum and just taking things as they come. So thanks and keep doing what you do. Hi Chris and all the beautiful people that are listening to me right now. Um, I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago um, you played a song uh, from Kim Churchill and I still remember that moment when that song came through my ears and directly to my heart. So um, in a kind of an impulse I decided to book a plane and come to Berlin to see his show here in Europe. So I'm saying hi from Berlin. I flew from Spain, uh, which is where I study uh, psychology. So uh, I hope you're all doing okay and I'm sending you all my beautiful energy from here and keep believing in life, people. Life is energy and we must keep that going on. Lots of love. Bye. Hi Chris, and all the tangential listeners out there in the interverse. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are. I'm Mark from Kilmarnock, Scotland. My day to day has consisted of picking up my wee Japanese camper van that I bought on eBay last night, jumped on a 4am flight to London this morning, and I'm currently halfway through my 400 mile drive home to get them tweaked up, a few test trips, and ready for full time van life throughout mainland Europe. I love the podcast, Chris. I like the way you live your own life and the message you spread. And uh, it gives me a lot of inspiration, yourself and various other people in the podcast community to, to do what I want to do in my life. There's a lot of naysayers out there that will question you. What about your job? What about your money? What about your car? You can't fucking listen to these people. You need to live the life that you want to live. You don't need to be famous, a millionaire, you don't have an actor or an author. Make a plan, save up what you can, and then execute it. Hope to one day meet you in person, Chris. Grab a beer, have a convo. But until that day, keep living. how Mark's accent renders the word living and loving basically the same. Uh, keep loving, keep living. I don't know what he's saying, but I plan to keep doing both. So thank you. Thank you, all of you who send in these little intro clips. They're fantastic. I mean, some of these I'm playing a year after I get them, but uh, I got a lot more than I can play unless I was just going to like, you know, play 20 of them per episode or something, but keep sending them. I love them. They're fantastic. And, you know, eventually I'll get to yours. Sometimes I play them as soon as they come in because I don't have a good Wi-Fi connection. So the only ones I have access to are the ones that are currently in my 
email. This is all detail you don't really give a shit about. But um, anyway, that's I'm just explaining why some of you are like, whoa, he played it a week after I sent it. And others are like waiting a year later. Anyway, this episode is with Dr. Lori Brato, who is a fascinating woman who does important work around sexuality, particularly um, female sexual desire and some of the problems and issues that can arise around that. Um, This is a fascinating conversation. We talk about the intricacies of desire, male desire, female desire, how they're similar, how they're different. Um, what are some of the causes for blockages of desire? Uh, what is the sort of generating force behind these things? Um, personally, I've always felt that desire is, how can I say this? It, it, it's appetite. It's it's an expression of life. And for me, libido and life force are pretty much synonymous. Uh, I don't have a lot of physical energy. I'm not like a guy who's climbing mountains and going for a run every day. And I have friends who, if they don't expend that energy, they they feel bad. It, it That energy needs to flow through them somehow. I've personally, this may be too much information for some of you, but personally, my I only feel that in terms of eroticism. I've never felt that in terms of athletics or um, other types of energy expenditure. But I've often felt uh, difficulty understanding the whole question of how desire could be a problem. I may have spoken about this previously on the podcast when I've spent time in meditation retreats like I did at 10-day Vipassana retreat years ago, and I've read about a lot of stuff in Buddhism and, and you know, had uh, the yoga teachers and all this stuff. The one stumbling block I could never get past is this sense that desire is a an impediment to insight and wisdom and so on. Um, because to me, desire always felt like life itself and... Um, I know that there are different translations of the word from Sanskrit and there are different ways of looking at desire. And I understand that really what they're talking about in Buddhism is a desire that um, dominates one's thinking and, and experience in a way that uh, that robs you of, of calm and um, that desire doesn't necessarily have to do that. I think maybe that's one of the keys to maturing in a way is learning to not suppress the desire, but to integrate it in such a way that it doesn't throw you off balance. Um, so in the most sort of pedestrian translation of that could be the sort of dating scene and there was a time in my life where I was so full of erotic desire that it was difficult for me to interact with women without being nervous. And I know a lot of guys listening to this right now can relate to what I'm saying. And, uh, 
And that sucks because, you know, once you get past that stage and you get to know someone and you relax around them, then uh, it's much easier to let them see who you really are. But in those initial interactions, it can be overwhelming. Um, just the, the sort of the, the energy that's, that's you know, pulsing through, uh, a testosterone adult young man (laughs) can make it very hard to just be normal or to even pretend to be normal. Um, and so the impulse is to suppress it, but it never works. Suppressing anything never works. Uh, it never solves the problem. So there's a way to integrate it in such a way that you feel it, but you don't feel thrown off balance by it. Anyway, that, I don't know how I got off onto that. I guess it's, it makes sense though, because this uh, episode is brought to you. <laughs> How's this for a segue? segue? Uh, this episode is brought to you by Lilo, L-E-L-O, which is, as far as I know, the best manufacturer of sex toys in the world. I mean, the manufacturer of the best sex toys in the world. I don't know. Arrange those words however you want. I first came, I don't know when I first saw these. I I have to admit, again, this may be too much information for some people, but I have probably given away, I don't know, maybe 20 vibrators over the years. Um, The thing is, vibrators are a very good gift. Um, At least for the kinds of women that I tend to get involved with, because When a man gives a woman a vibrator, what's he saying to her? He's saying, A, your pleasure is interesting and important to me. B, I'm not threatened by you finding that pleasure in ways that a less secure man could see as threatening, as as competitive. I think a lot of guys think like my magical dick should be everything this woman could ever want. And if she ever wants or needs anything in addition to my magical dick, there's something wrong with her or something wrong with my magical dick. And so if you can get past that, guys, I'm talking to the guys here, uh, that's a really good thing because your dick isn't really all that magical. Sorry, it's just a dick like everybody else's. And there are lots of ways to find pleasure. There are lots of different types of pleasure. There are types of pleasure that can be found in in conjunction with your magical dick or instead of your magical dick or when your magical dick isn't available. So when you give a woman a vibrator, You're saying that you're confident, you're relaxed, and there's a certain generosity and and sort of openness to her experience that is a very good message to send to a woman, I believe. Women out there can tell me what you think, but it's in my experience, it's been a very well-received gift. So the other thing is there are areas in life where you really don't want to try to save money. Uh, and a vibrator is one of them. You don't want to give a woman one of those vibrators you buy in a shop on Times Square, or at least you used to. I don't know what's going on in Times Square now. Like hard plastic, you know, stick of uh, battery. No, those nobody wants to mess with those. 
Lila vibrators are really well designed. They're beautiful. They don't look like vibrators, so it's not like, you know, a dick with a motor in it. They look like pieces of art. The the material that they use, the silicon, is nice to the touch. It's not cold. It feels like skin. They've got all sorts of different designs. Beautiful. So my point is, vibrators are a really good gift. A really nice vibrator is an even better gift. And these are, as far as I know, the best vibrators anywhere. Um, so, and luckily we have a discount code, 15% off your entire order, uh, full price item. Some of the stuff's on sale and it's already reduced 20% or whatever. I think they have sort of a rotating sale thing going on. Um, but I would really encourage you to check them out. Dudes, if there's a woman in your life you want to impress, this is a good way to do it. Uh, women, if you just want to get one for yourself, you know, there's nothing wrong with some self-love. Lilo.to forward slash Ryan. That'll get you your 15% off the entire order. I met these fine folks probably a year ago when they sponsored um, a talk that I gave at South by Southwest in Austin, with Dr. Jana Vrangalova, who uh, I had on the podcast as well, teaches at NYU, uh, also uh, works in sexuality and desire and dating and courtship behavior and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't remember what episode that was, but you can do a search and you'll find that. Jana Vrangalova. Anyway, at the time, the folks from Lalo said, hey, can we sponsor your podcast? And I said, I don't do sponsorships. Um, so when I reconsidered that and decided to do some sponsorships sponsorships i reached out to them and and they were happy to join forces so check them out lelo l-e-l-o dot t-o forward slash ryan for 15 percent off those high-end sex toys all right now i'm coming to you from a conference room in um Marriott Hotel near Golden, Colorado. And the reason I'm sitting in the conference room of a Marriott Hotel near Golden, Colorado is that uh, about a little over a week ago, I had the oil changed in the van, Scarlett Johansson, in a little town, little city called Idaho Falls, Idaho. Strange town, I have to say. Uh, not unattractive. There's a river going right through the center of town. Um, but a weird feeling. Uh, it, it felt very twilight zony. Uh, just the people that we interacted with, everybody seemed to have sort of a, a distant gaze. And, and it, it almost felt like I was in an episode of Westworld, like everybody was um, uh, some sort of a robot. Uh, I don't know. It was very weird. And we went downtown and downtown is empty. There's like nothing there. The The center of the city has just been, I guess, just collapsed economically. And there's a bunch of shit around it. There are Walmarts and, you know, all that kind of crap all around the outskirts of the town. But the center of the town was empty, just totally gutted. Very strange. Um. Anyway, so I took the van to one of these Valvoline quick lube kind of places, which I've never used in the past, um, and certainly not with the van because Oliver always, you know, does everything with the van. And 
I even joked with him, you know, I was like, I'm, I've got to take her in for an oil change. And he's like, oh, don't let anyone else touch her. Uh, we're joking around about that. And anyway, so I take it to this place and, you know, they had cars lined up that they, they had RVs. And so they know, they know what they're doing. All they do is change oil all day. Right. Anyway, they changed the oil. And a couple days later, we drove up to Grand, the Grand Tetons. We were in the park there, started the motor and the engine in the morning. And there was this like clack, 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 like me- real metallic sound. And uh, just when it was idling and then took it out and was driving. And once we got driving, it didn't hear the sound anymore. So, okay, I guess it's no big deal. It's new oil, whatever. Uh, drove down, had a long drive down through Wyoming into northern Colorado uh, over some mountains and across this desert. It was hot and it didn't get up into the red zone, but it was definitely the engine was hot. It was a, you know, challenging day. Uh, And then the next morning, that metallic sound was even worse. And so I contacted Oliver and he said, yeah, it's probably no big deal, but have somebody look at it. And I did, and the guy, this was in Granby, Colorado, really nice guy, uh, Grand County Automotive, Dave, very, very kind person. Anyway, he took the oil filter out, and there were bits of metal in the filter, which is about the worst possible thing you can see, because that means that something inside the engine has exploded or you know fallen apart and is... There's shards of metal floating around in your oil. So that basically meant that the motor, the engine is cooked. 168,000 miles, which on a diesel is just barely broken in. Uh, That engine should go 500,000 miles. So that's a bit of a tragedy. Now, I tell the story in terms of the oil change. I don't know that those guys did anything that caused this, but it sure seems suspicious that within 48 hours of the oil change, that noise started, which, you know, a week later resulted in total meltdown. It could be a coincidence, but I don't know. Anyway, the van is now in a place called Linden Automotive in Golden, Colorado. They specialize in sprinters. And for $13,000, they are swapping in a brand new Mercedes engine, which hopefully will go a million miles. I don't know. So that's what's happening there. Uh, Van life continues to be fantastic. I don't regret anything. You know, what is that? In L.A., that's about, uh, what, six months rent or five months rent or something. And I'm wondering why I'm paying rent at all, to be honest with you. Uh, I love my life in L.A. I love my friends there. I miss them. My buddy Simon Rex is in the hospital right now. No no big deal. He just had an infection and it wasn't treated properly. And so they've got him in for observation. And I wish I were there to visit him and crack him up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I, I love this van life so much. Last night... I had a little get-together, just announced, you know, 48 hours ahead of time or three days ahead of time in um, at a bar in Golden. About probably 35, 40 people showed up. It was great. Really cool people. Fantastic. Uh, 
And a couple people said to me, um, you know how you say that, you know, only really cool people show up to these things. You're right, man. Everybody's really cool. And it, it's great. And you see people like they come alone and there's a people, you know, there's a table of 20 people talking and they're sort of standing there feeling a little shy. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's one of the most terrifying situations there is. Right. And, uh, you see people at the table, Hey, are you here to see Chris? Come on over. And it's just such a welcoming, friendly vibe. It makes me fucking proud. I have to say. So I love this life, the traveling around in the van and meeting you folks. And I'm sorry, I can't make it to Scotland or Australia. Uh, I'm sure that would be just as gratifying. Anyway, that's an update on the van situation. Uh, one other situation I wanted to bring to your attention while I have it is uh, Stanley Krippner, who you've heard on this podcast a few times, very good friend of mine, um, sort of a mentor. Um, he has had a bit of an issue. The uh, graduate school is relocating. Saybrook is relocating to Pasadena. And uh, they basically decided not to bring Stanley. Um, and in, uh, on one level, I guess it's sort of understandable. Uh, Stanley's 86 and... Um, He's going to work till he dies, no doubt about it. Um, not just because financially it's necessary, but because that's who he is. He's not a guy who's going to, you know, go fishing. He loves working with students. He loves writing. He loves thinking and research and all that. And um, anyway, so without getting into all the details, essentially they let Stanley go after over forty years of working at that school and. So some friends of Stanley's have set up a GoFundMe because Stanley is not a guy who saves a lot of money or has invested over the years. He's uh, pretty, um, sorry, someone's trying to get in the room here. He's a guy who has shared his money and taken care of other people. God knows he's taken care of me. He probably took me to 25 or 30 different countries when I was in grad school and he always claimed he was paying for my flight with his accumulated miles, but there were so many flights, I can't imagine he had that many miles. I think he was probably paying out of pocket um, for me and for other people that he took around the world and helped get published and, and just the guy's generosity uh, knows no limits. Anyway, so there's a support GoFundMe for Stanley Krippner. If you enjoy the episodes with him and you have a little extra cash or a lot of extra cash, um, it would be great if you could help out with this. Uh, if you just go to GoFundMe.com and search for Dr. Stanley Krippner, you'll see the, the page there. Uh, it's being run by Sidian Jones, who's the grandson of Rolling Thunder, who was a shaman that Stanley was good friends with back in the late 60s and early 70s and um Sidian and Stanley are great friends and uh, it's just you know a sign of how beautiful he is that he's friends with three generations of people in the same family anyway uh that's all I'm going to say about that but really appreciate it if you can help Stanley uh with that GoFundMe, GoFundMe campaign I know Sidian well and I can assure you personally that all the money will go to Stanley and there won't be any hanky panky or, uh, you know, 
administrative costs associated other than what GoFundMe takes. All right, that's more than enough from me. Sorry to be so long-winded this time. Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song by Joe Henry, who's one of my favorite singer-songwriters. I think I've played at least one other song by him in the past, Stop, which is an amazing tune. I'd love to play that again sometime. Anyway, this one's called Like She Was a Hammer. And I think it's a pretty much perfect song. Uh, There aren't a lot of perfect songs. I think this one's pretty much perfect. The music, I mean, just pick an instrument. Pick the snare drum or, or pick the guitar, pick the bass, pick whatever you do. Just pick it and follow it through the song. There's so much style, so much sort of light touch. Um, and if you listen to the lyrics, my God, the lyrics are just out of nowhere. They're so unexpected, so powerful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I won't even try to repeat them right now, but I'm just going to play this song and I hope you enjoy it. This episode is with Dr. Lori Brado, sex researcher at the University of British Columbia. Fantastic, interesting woman. Thank you for listening to this. Hope you enjoy it.
Ladies and gentlemen, let's hope this works. We were having some technical difficulties. I'm sitting in the office of Dr. Lori Brato at the Women's Health Center, Women's, Women's Hospital. Women's Health Research Institute. Women's Health Research Institute at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for My doing pleasure. this. I know you're very busy. You've got conferences and students and patients. And how many different hats do you wear? Um, well, you're about, 18. about 18. About <laughs> 18. Something have, like that. And you're also a mother, right? I've got three kids. Three kids. I, I was at a barbecue at your house you like were? 10 years ago yes, or something. Yes, you were. I've got a teenager now. Wow. Wish me luck. Wow. Yeah. So I follow you on Twitter. And did you meet Wednesday Martin? Or did, yeah, I've did, met her. You times. met her, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're you're featured in Untrue, I believe, mm-hmm. your research. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who aren't familiar with your work, uh, would do you want to summarize? Can you summarize? I know it's a lot of it's sexual dysfunction. Yeah. Um, uh, particularly with women, uh, exclusively with women? or No, not exclusively with women, primarily with women. Um, so I guess if I were to summarize my research, it's really about understanding the causes of and ultimately the facilitators of sexual desire, um, primarily in women. But I'll, I'll get to what we're doing um, in, in men in just a few moments. So um, if I may go back a little bit, my interest in women's sexual desire started the year Viagra was approved mm-hmm. in men. What year was that? Um, 1998 in the United States, 99 in Canada. And that same year in 99, there was a, a big um, JAMA publication that came out that said 43% of women have sexual dysfunction, meaning that they had ongoing and distressing problems with their lack of interest in sex, trouble 
lubricating difficulties with orgasm. Um, and so on the heels of the blockbuster success that Viagra was, I became really interested in, wow, if nearly half of women have sexual problems, what kind of treatments are available for them? Um, and I was somewhat dismayed to see rather quickly that there was almost nothing. So there was no approved medication. Um, there was lots and lots of off-label use of different kinds of hormones and experimental antidepressants. Um, and even the psychological literature was quite sparse. Um, so that really started my interest in um, uh, what, you know, what kind of effective, safe, ideally efficient and cost-effective treatments might there be available that would really turn the dial on improving women's sexual desire. Um, and so I became interested in mindfulness as a, as a possible approach. Mm -hmm. My interest in mindfulness um, actually started not in the context of sexual concerns, but in the context of individuals who were really struggling with identity, struggling with harming themselves, parasuicidal behaviors as a way of coping with difficult emotions. And so what I learned is that mindfulness, which really is about tuning in, paying attention deliberately, moment by moment, non-judgmentally, was a way to help people not only really connect with their thoughts, feelings, body sensations, um, but also help them cope. And so a little bit of, of on a whim, I said to my supervisor at the time, uh, Dr. Julia Hyman, what if we were to take this approach that has shown us that it can help people really connect with who they are in these other populations? And, and if we were to try this in women who have sexual concerns, what do you think? And she said, well, there's nothing to lose. So that was really the first of, of this um, long wave of experimental work around the use of mindfulness meditation both individually, then in, in groups. Now we're using it in couples. Um, and and um, by and far what we've found is that not only can it be quite effective in cultivating sexual desire, but it has this secondary effect of improving domains like mood, quality of life, ability to manage stress, empathy for a partner. Um, and so it's the the field has, the science of the field has, has really evolved. Um, and there's lots of other groups around the world that are now implementing this either in their own research settings or even in their own clinics. Mm. And at the time when this occurred to you, you were a grad student? I was um, just at the, the tail end of my PhD, so there's a requirement within clinical psych that you do a residency, one-year residency. So it was during my residency year, and then I did a two-year postdoc right, after that. Right. And John Kabat-Zinn, is he the guy who brought mindfulness in? Is he a cardiologist? He, he was an experimental microbiologist. Oh, really? Yes, at MIT in Boston. Ah. And so he was you know, deep into the research on microbiology at MIT. And in passing, he encountered um, meditation, really, after attending a lecture that was being conducted through a lecture series at MIT. And it was done by a master Zen um, Buddhist individual. He began meditating right away and completely changed the course of his work. He left the microbiology lab and then instead went into the pain clinics. So started mm. working with the anesthesiology doctors okay. and said, 
you know, I've learned this technique um, about tuning in, and I think there's something to it in helping your patients manage their pain. So give me, you know, the patients with the worst, the most intractable pains that don't respond to anything, um, and let's see what happens. And so that that started in about the mid '70s. So. Um, definitely much of the kind of Western approaches to mindfulness, both the clinical practice and the research, um, can be credited to John Kabat-Zinn. Mm. Is he still alive? He is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess he's probably friends with Andy Weil. Yes. Who we were talking about a yes. few minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, and I've had the opportunity to meet John Kabat-Zinn a couple of times as well and tell uh, him about our work. And, oh, great. Um, funny story is, you know, in his, um, he's got lots and lots of online recordings of body scans and mindfulness of breath. And when you listen to them, and in the body scan in particular, you know, focus on the feet, focus on the thigh, focus on the back, focus on the head. And he seems to always skip over the genitals mm. in his recording. So I asked him about this. I cornered him at a meeting and I said, why do you always skip the genitals? And he said, well, no, I never skip the genitals in person when I'm running groups, but for all of the public recordings he does. So after I gave him an earful and suggested that he needs to go back and include mention of the genitals um, in, in his recordings. Uh, yeah, no, he's actually been um, quite a supporter of, of this work um, and just in seeing sort of the, the reach that mindfulness has, um, has spread to has been pretty impressive. Have you ever done a Vipassana retreat? I have done a Vipassana retreat. And so one of my supervisors at the University of Washington um, was a Vipassana practitioner and, and teacher. Mm. Yeah, that that's a pretty intense experience. Mm -hmm. though. Did mm -hmm. you do the full 10-day? No, it was just no, a three-day. Three yeah. 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 I mean, you reminded me of it when you said he skipped the genitals because <laughs> – I mean, I spent 10 days. I wish I could have skipped the genitals. <laughs> In my mind, this was a long time ago. I was younger and randier, I guess. But meditation for me was just like some sort of a porn festival. When my mind, <laughs> I could, when it went blank, that's sort of the default setting, I guess. I don't know. But that's, I think, it, I mean, that it's so fascinating to see where the mind goes. And when we yeah. quiet down enough to actually look inside, we can watch what the mind does. And sometimes it's fascinating. Sometimes yeah. it's scary where the mind goes. But, <laughs> you know, um, it's certainly no less interesting just to see where the mind goes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and unless you are conscious of, of where it goes, you can't control it, and right. then you have that drunken right. monkey syndrome happening. Um, it it seems like there in in the kind of work that you're doing and other people are doing around women's sexual desire and what we're calling dysfunction or. Um, there's an assumption that a certain amount of sexual desire is normal, is um, to be desired, not to be punny here, but is that – I guess what I'm trying to, to get at is do we know are, – are, are you looking at blockages of a natural flow of energy or – do you feel that the spring dries up, that, that there is no flow of energy? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, and um, 
you know, it takes me back to what we started talking about earlier around we still don't know what are the main causes of, let's say in the woman who says, I used to have desire and now it's gone. That's sort of most commonly what we see in the clinical setting is is someone who's really mourning the change in her desire. And so, of course, one question is, well, is that kind of a normative change right. in desire, right? right, in response to being in a long-term relationship, mm. right, and the declines in desire that happen in the context of a monogamous relationship and um, just age aging, could be stress-related, yeah. could be medication-related. Right. Um, you know, so the extent to which is normative versus no, this there's really something problematic that's going on here, and and oftentimes it can be very very challenging to decipher those two situations. Um, our sort of understanding of desire, and this is really born out of the emotion literature, is you know when we consider an emotion like happiness. We know from emotion theory that people feel happy when there are triggers that elicit happiness in them, right? Someone does something nice to you, says something nice to you, gives you something, makes you feel happy. So emotion um, is triggered in response to those things. And desire probably works the same way, maybe not entirely because we're all born with a certain Mm. predisposition to having a... um, Uh, responsivity to our desire. And so if we think about it in that way, then it may be the case that for a lot of people, there's a problem in the triggers, right? So when, let's say, if triggers become over-familiar, right, being with the same partner for 20 years, the triggers are are become so familiar that they don't have that same effect on eliciting desire mm. anymore. Um, and so what can we do to change triggers, to change the environmental context, um, uh, or perhaps to even give in, in more intense triggers to elicit the woman's desire? So one of the things that mindfulness allows us to do, first of all, because it really hinges on being non-judgmental, one of the really important things it does is it helps people get over their hang-ups about, oh, I'm not going to try that because that's too kinky, that's mm. inappropriate, I've never done that before, I've never asked for that before. So the non-judgment part um, allows people to be much more kind of experimental in that in that sense. The other thing that mindfulness does is because it really is about paying attention, they may notice a response to a trigger that they hadn't noticed before. Mm. So let's say if it's in response to a certain visual uh, trigger, you know, they're a certain kind of, of um, maybe it's a shirt their partner's wearing that that you know that that could turn them on if they paid if they paid attention to it. So we use mindful mindfulness in that way to intensify um, the effects of those those triggers. It also allows them to get into tune with the things that get in the way. So smells can be really powerful. Certain sounds, even certain kinds of touches, can be very powerful um, obstacles to sexual desire. And so um, allowing the woman to say, you know what, that is actually turning me off and then empowering her to communicate Mm. that in a healthy way to a partner or to whomever she's with. Right. What about shame? Shame must be omnipresent in in blocking this flow. Yeah. A lot of women have shame. Um, And for a lot of them, it's unjustified shame. You know, there are messages that they grew up with as a child. If you masturbate, you'll never find a partner. For example, isn't all shame unjustified? Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I make think it, so. You know, I, I think regret can be appropriate yeah. sometimes. Yeah. You know, we all do things we wish we hadn't, and yeah. it's important to remember that. But 
to me, shame is something that a religion yeah. or a, an unhealthy adult infected you with before yeah. you knew what it even was. And mm-hmm. I think so many of us in the West grow up feeling and, and this is what I was trying to get at earlier, and maybe we can mm-hmm. come back to this, this this idea that a certain amount of desire is normative. Like, uh, I mean, I certainly feel that in my own case, but I'm very wary of that presumption because it almost sounds like like we're putting another thing to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Like, now you don't have enough sexual desire. What's wrong with you? Right. Whereas right. maybe some people just, I mean, I know there's a spectrum, yeah. right? Of, yeah. Are people who come to you are by definition unhappy yes. with the level of desire in their yes. lives, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, to your point, maybe all shame is unjustified. I'd probably go out on a limb and totally agree with you on that. Mm. Just thinking about where shame, where I've seen shame in my own life and my relationships, my friends, and certainly in the women and the people I see. And, you know, so mindfulness, um, there's a really interesting practice um, called mindfulness of thoughts. And in mindfulness of thoughts, what you do is when you have thoughts, rather than getting wrapped up in the content of them, so the shame thought might be, you know, you were a bad person and mm. you, you know, you need to pay the price for that. Rather than getting wrapped up in the source of that and the outcome of that and what I need to do to repent, et cetera, you just recognize it as um, an unhelpful thought. Right. So if you can describe it at arm's length and it loses mm. its power. Mm. And so that's um, certainly one of the practices in mindfulness um, that's really common and that we particularly use with women with sexual concerns who have lots and lots and layers and layers of negative thoughts and shame and other unhealthy emotions. Um, so, yeah, I would say that if it's not shame, it's some other type of negative emotion um, that uh, that they carry with them into the sexual context. And in most cases, it's totally misplaced. Yeah. It, it has no right being there. Well, and, and what girls have grown up in Western societies not feeling that their desire is disgusting, mm-hmm. right? Inappropriate, dangerous. Yeah. Um, it's going to, you know, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to, yeah. you know, whatever. The, the sex ed that we teach kids yeah. is like, it's bad. It's dangerous. Stay away. Yeah. So you're, you, you know, you're dealing with all these physiological issues, but you're also yeah. dealing with a lifetime of messaging. It must be overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, and, you know, don't fool yourself in thinking this is just a Western or North American phenomenon. Mm, I was, as I mentioned, I was just at Women Deliver all week where there there were individuals from 200 countries present, and there was an entire session this morning on body esteem from Mm. women from all different countries, and it's endemic. It's, you know, it cuts across all cultures. Yeah, yeah, India. I'm always amazed in India how sex negative a culture it is, you know, when you think of the Kama Sutra and the incredible temples celebrating eroticism, how how much it's changed thanks to us, you know, colonialism. Let us introduce some shame into your culture. (laughs) It's what we do best. Mm. Have you, do you have any experience or any uh, thoughts on, um, the use of psychedelics or MDMA in the sorts of therapy that you're doing? Yeah, I, you know, there's um, there's a little bit of a literature actually on MDMA among people who have a history of trauma. Yeah. 
Um, and um, unfortunately, lots of the people I see, we've actually tracked this, about 60% of them have some history of trauma um, above and beyond sexual harassment. So physical trauma, sexual trauma, many of them as children. Um, and so for some of them, they've self-reported, so their own experience of using MDMA combined with mindfulness, mm. actually, as a way to overcome some of the, the trauma symptoms. So one of the common things that we see is women, you know, they may have had a history of sexual abuse, and now they find themselves in an adult, consensual, happy, wanted relationship. They want to have sex with their partner. Um, and when they try to do so, they dissociate. Or they have, um, you know, they reimagine the trauma that happened to them as a young child. Um, and so mindfulness is a way of, number one, helping them to stay really, really present. Um, and some of them have, have self-reported that that combined with MDMA has really been what they needed to overcome that. Now, there's been no experimental work um, among individuals with, with sexual concerns. But like I've said, I've heard it anecdotally enough to make me think that there's probably something to it. Yeah. And MDMA accomplishes some of the same things that mindfulness can help with. Yeah. A reduction of anxiety yeah. and, and inhibition. Yeah. I have a friend, um, Jose Carlos Busso, who was doing his PhD research in Madrid uh, using MDMA with in therapy with women who had been um, sexually abused and were not responsive to any other protocol. That yeah. They tried everything. Yeah. And uh, he was he had amazing results. This was all approved government licensed everything was fine consent form was signed <laughs> you know he was getting the mdma from the government yeah. of spain wow this was uh 99 yeah. 2000 2001 yeah and then um his research was sponsored by maps do you know them no multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies oh okay they um <clears throat> they they're behind a lot of the research in psilocybin uh, mm -hmm. in um, with um, terminal cancer patients mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, all this research. They they funded it anyway. They mm -hmm. said he was um, asked to do an interview with mm -hmm. the national newspaper in Spain, and he didn't want to do it. But Maps said, "Yeah, go ahead and do it. This, yeah. this is all above board, right? Yeah. There's nothing to be ashamed of." He did it. They shut down his research. No, because. The it, university it became didn't public. Want to, yeah. The university was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. No, they didn't want to deal with backlash. This. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, it's sort of somewhere between anecdotal yeah. And, yeah. and the literature. Uh, yeah, very yeah. interesting I stuff. mean, it makes, you know, on a mecha mechanisms level, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, you know, when we look at other interventions that are about tuning out, like distraction techniques, ultimately they, they're doomed to fail in the long term because you want the person to be in the situation mm. that's causing them the anxiety, right. et cetera. So any technique, whether, you know, it's a psychedelic or a mindfulness practice or, you know, deep breathing that allows them to be really present and fully in tune with what's happening, after all, when you have sex, you want to be there, right? And mm -hmm. so many people, they don't show up when they're having sex. Their mm. body's having sex. They're not having sex, though. They're somewhere else. Yeah. What a tragedy. It is. The, the one thing that focuses the mind potentially more than anything is the one place where it's, it's like what Mark Twain said about heaven. You know, we've, we, how ironic it is that 
we've imagined a heaven in w- that lacks the one thing we all like the most, sex. There's no sex in heaven. <laughs> How is that possible? No, uh, thank you. I don't get it. <laughs> so you mentioned Viagra before. Mm-hmm. I, I've always wondered, does Viagra increase desire or does no. it just create erections? No. And so, you know, unfortunately, um, on the heels of Viagra being approved in men and there's been this you know, 20-year race to find, quote, the female Viagra right. as the treatment for a women's low desire. It's completely wrong. Vi- all, the only thing Viagra does is um, it acts, first of all, it acts on the body. It acts peripherally, not in the brain. Right. Um, and it stimulates blood flow. Right. Right. So in the same way <clears throat> that it blocks a chemical pathway that stops erection in men. So basically what that means is that men still need to have desire. They still need to engage in stimulation. It's not the case that you take the Viagra and you have an erection. You still need to engage in whatever it is that's going to turn you on. And then Viagra blocks the erection from stopping. That's what it does. So in women, it does the same thing. It doesn't travel to the brain. It doesn't make you fantasize more. It doesn't make you any more turned on to your partner or like your partner. It stimulates blood flow into the clitoris, and that's all that it does. Now, would the increased blood flow then make the clitoris more sensitive, which then could lead to more attention? Yep. And it, then more fantasy, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. It certainly can. And, you know, there's there have been many, many, many studies now looking at Viagra in different populations of women. Um, most of them had failed, but there are a couple that have actually been positive. So one of them has been in women with spinal cord injury and MS hmm. that have reduced sensitivity to the genitals. So that's the population that it makes sense that Viagra might help them, right? So by stimulating blood flow and therefore increasing sensitivity, they tune into it more, right. and then perhaps a side effect of that is, um, wow, I feel physically aroused. Now I'm turned on. Right. Right. But that's not the vast majority of complaints that we see from women. Most women, it's, you know, I don't like sex anymore, or I don't want to be touched anymore, or yeah. I never think about it anymore. Right. It's not about the body. No. Yeah. So can we talk about the differences between male and female desire? Uh, you're probably the most expert person I've had on to talk about female desire. My understanding is that female desire is much more reactive, so it's more contextual. Is that accurate? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, there are a lot of similarities between men and women. There are some notable differences, and that is one. So first of all, um, probably owing to the fact that men have 10 times the level of testosterone Mm. that women have, that means that sort of feeling of innate desire, you know, desire that you can't attribute to anything in particular is much stronger in men than it is in women. You know, I'm glad you said that because I had I got into a debate with a woman last week, I think. Yeah, within the last week or so. And she said, no way. I, I. I, and I'm very, you know, I'm, there are very few things that yeah. I would say categorically, right. you know, men are different from women. Right. But I said, you don't know what it's like to be a 15-year-old boy. Yeah. You're intoxicated. Yeah. And she's like, you know what? Like, you, ca- you can't yeah. imagine how hungry for dick I get. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I can't. But, <laughs> but looking at the evidence. Yeah. So, of course, uh, there's a bell-shaped curve. And yeah. she's probably on the far right side. I guess so, right? yeah. Um, so in terms of you know women's levels of testosterone, we are on a bell-shaped curve. There's also a bell-shaped curve in terms of how responsive we are to triggers, right? Mm. So perhaps 
um, for her, it takes fewer kinds of triggers to turn her on. Mm. Whereas for a lot of women, they need several potent triggers, right. right? So it's the right environment, it's the right smell, it's the right touch, it's the right frame of mind, feeling safe, making sure the door is locked, making sure the lights are just right in order for her to respond to to um, to touch in that now, situation. Do you think that that level uh, of sort of need for everything to be exactly right, do you think that that's something innate to women's sexuality or do you think that that's what's required for someone who's got some hang-ups and some neuroses around sexuality to finally be relaxed enough to get into it? I think it's the former and really? definitely not the latter. You know, and yes, there are some people that the sun and the moon and the stars need to be aligned perfectly and um but that's, you know, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about ensuring that the triggers are appropriate ensuring that there are triggers to begin with mm. and that barriers are either eliminated altogether, right? So things like medications that can get in the way, fatigue, right. being distracted. The kids are asleep, exactly. nobody's going to barge in. All those things. Right. So that's, you know, that's not about being needy. That's about desire being largely responsive in women. And mm. so in response to your first question, yeah, the combination of um, men having kind of a, a higher biological set point, if you will, owing in large part to testosterone and women not having that, combined with um, the desire being more responsive in women, then yeah, we do have these differences between men and women. Some of the data tell us though that as men age, their desire looks more female-like. Yeah. Right? And then, of course, there are lots of exceptions where women's desire looks more male-like. With as age well. as well? Um, because the testosterone to progesterone yeah, ratios so, are changing? So, yeah. So in some women, because what happens with, est with uh, menopause is you have this sharp drop in estrogen, um, but not in testosterone. Right. And you have the adrenal glands that are producing DHEA. And they don't really change in their level of producing DHEA. And DHEA has also been linked to levels to sexual desire. We've published in the area. Others have as well. And so there, for some women, there's a, um, a period of time after, after the menopause where they actually have an increase in desire because of the predominance of their DHEA levels. Mm. So it's really tricky because at the same time, you know, you have these hormonal changes. You have a, a change in a woman's body image. Right. Right. So with estrogen going down, she's more likely to have pain with penetration. She's mm. more likely to have dryness. Right. Her skin is likely to change the kind of, you know, laxity of her skin, her and muscular st status of her body, all of which can directly impact sure. her self-esteem and therefore her desire. Right. So lots of different things are happening at the same time. It's hard to say it's just one thing. Sure. Yeah. Everything's so multifactorial. Yeah. What... Um, you're continuing along this line of of female desire, do you you ever teach? Have you ever taught sex ed? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To what age groups? So um, currently, I teach it at my kids' elementary school. Oh, great! Um, but I take it off site. We actually do it in someone's house <laughs> so that it's a lot more comfortable. Right. Um, and that's always really fun because I do very little teaching. And I do more kind of correcting <laughs> and redirecting. So I always open it with asking the kids, tell me what you know. About. How old are they? Um, so they're um, 
fourth to sixth grade, so between nine and eleven. Oh, most good, of them. Good age. Yeah. And what what have you learned doing that? Um, I've learned that you know kids are really curious, and they they know a lot more than we think that they know. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they're prone to myths as well, and especially if they grow up in a household. And you can always tell when <laughs> they come from a household where you know there's sort of oppressive views around sexuality um, and pregnancy and menstruation, et cetera. So you know, I sometimes worry about when I ask, does anyone know what a period is? Um, and the kids that don't, don't put their hands up Right, because if they if they're not learning about periods, they most definitely are not learning about sex yeah. and pleasure as well. You teach the boys and the girls together. I no, I do it separately. Separate them. Oh. Yeah, and that's based on the kids' choice because I've offered right. like to do this with the boys in the class or separate, and they always say separately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It also allows, um, I think, um, I was going to say the girls, but it's really both groups to To ask, you know, those needling questions that they'd mm-hmm. be less likely to do when yeah. the other genders are in the room. Lots more laughing. And, oh, lots yeah. more laughing. We get glasses of water out, and I give all the girls a tampon. You know, nine-year-old girls, and I ask them to open it up and put it in the glass of water, and then they watch them open up, and <laughs> it's like, yeah, they have a lot of fun with that. Do you have? pushback from parents? I guess it's voluntary, it's, right? It's totally voluntary. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, people vote with their feet. If they don't want yeah. their kids to hear it, they just don't show up. Do you approach it from the perspective of, I mean, this this is like a taboo to even say, I think, but that kids are sexual beings. Yeah. Or do you believe that sexuality is something that blossoms at 14 or 15? Yeah. You know, I, I I really believe that we're all innately sexual, um, but then the layers of society and judgment and peers and personal relationships um, really change that. Yeah. And typically in a, I shouldn't say typically, based on the experience of the people that I see in my clinics, it's typically in a negative way. Yeah. Right? Um, especially around body image and girls being labeled so often and so early and increasingly younger and younger thanks to social media and selfies yeah um and so that and also hormonal stuff in the food they're they're starting to menstruate at eight years of age and they're not ready developmentally right ready it's totally not a natural progression yeah yeah you know when you think of like i think of my own boys you know at the age of two years old being in the bath um, you know, and lying in the bathtub, spread legs with the water on their penis and loving it and loving life. And in that moment, me saying to them, I know it feels good. I'm going to step outside, you know, um, and thinking about parents that would be horrified in that situation. Yeah. That really kind of setting the stage right. for a lifetime of shame. Yeah. Mother walks in and screams. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about the research showing that. In many cases, if not most, a lot of the trauma from sexual abuse of an adult to a child, when there is an actual physiological trauma, happens around the response of the adults. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with that research? You yeah, know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, this mm-hmm. is this is hard to talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. people who want to be offended are going to be offended by what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But the research shows that 
if the parent, if if Uncle Charlie touches a little boy in a way that isn't cool, and the boy says something, and the parents say, "Well, stay away from Uncle Charlie," and you know he's a little strange, mm-hmm. and as opposed to calling the police, yeah. that the child's experience of trauma yeah. will be much much yeah. greater when you call yeah. the police and freak out. Yeah. And, and I'm not. I'm yeah. not saying it's inappropriate necessarily right. to involve the right. police. I'm saying that yeah. the response of the adults. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever heard of? Um, there's a paper by an anthropologist who was in Papua New Guinea. I think she's Australian. Mm-hmm. It's the paper's called "It's Only a Penis." Oh no, I haven't. Uh, I'll send you a copy. It's oh, wow. it's really interesting. Is I think she wrote it in the 70s, yeah. maybe early 80s. Um, and she recounts a, a situation where she was living with these people in um, the mountains in Papua New Guinea, and she was awakened to the sound of uh, ruckus and, mm-hmm. and like a woman screaming, and then the man fell out the window of the mm-hmm. like hut that she was in. And anyway, in the morning, um, she went out, and the women were doing the wash in the river, and they were all laughing. And mm-hmm. they, some of them were mimicking this man mm-hmm. just stumbling around with his pants around his ankles. And uh, she listened for a while, and, and she understood that this man had snuck in through the window mm-hmm. of a woman's hut mm-hmm. and crawled into bed with her. Mm-hmm. And she woke up and smacked him in the head with something, and he jumped up, and then the mosquito net got caught, and he mm-hmm. fell out the window, and, and they were all laughing. And she said, why are you laughing? Like, he wanted to rape you. And, but there was no word for rape in yeah. the language. So yeah. she just said he wanted to, like, put his penis in yeah. you. And the, the women all looked at her and said, it's just a penis. <gasps> Wow. And so the whole – and wow. so she was offended in a way yeah. on behalf of other women yeah. who, had, who had been raped. Yeah. But then it led her down this yeah. path of thinking like, wait a minute, why do we empower the penis mm-hmm. to destroy our lives mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. they're more empowered as women mm-hmm. by saying it's just a penis? Yeah. How yeah. could that – be a big deal. Wow. wow. Yeah. What a powerful message. So how do we integrate that into kind of contemporary society today? Yeah. Without yeah. without blaming right. victims, without right. blaming anyone. Right. We're and not... without diminishing the, you know, very, very frequently occurring cases of abuse and harassment right. as well. Right. Exactly. It's yeah. it's strange how the ways in which we define things yep. can kind of create the experiences. Yeah. yeah, you know, and if we bring this back to sexuality the number of people, like if they have a bad sexual encounter, um, that they kind of encode that and they believe, oh my gosh, my sex life is taking a downturn now because I've had this bad sexual encounter as opposed to, you know what, some are going to be bad, some are going to be toe-curling fantastic, and a whole lot of it is going to be just good enough. Um, And so let's sort of get over the times where it is bad and, um, you know, get back on the horse, so to speak. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's like you go to a restaurant and you have a bad meal. You're not going to, like, give up on restaurants for the rest of your life. I I think about that, you know, in the the Aziz Ansari situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know Mm -hmm. if you you remember. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, to my way of thinking, that was just a bad date. Yeah. And somehow it turned into a crime and a career 
life-threatening disaster. Are you sh- are you cautious about commenting on the whole Me Too situation, or where are you on that? Yeah, I am cautious. Um, you know, I think there have been so many, so many, too many um, genuine and horrific cases. Um, and I, you know, I applaud the Me Too movement for giving women a, a space and the safety to come forward. Um, at the same time, I, it does concern me a little bit that, um, you know, are there some disingenuous cases of, of Me Too or not? So first and foremost, I do believe in believing people. That's not just women. That's anyone who's had a history of, of sexualized violence. Um, but we just need to be very careful around what are we talking about, because even the definition of harassment or violence can mean different things to different people. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes we define things against our own interests. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's yeah, that it's so hard to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where do you think it seems from my perspective that sexuality is changing? At least our our shame around it, our openness to discussing it. The m- far more women are are involved in the scientific side and, and the clinical side than twenty or thirty years mm-hmm. ago. And openness to LGBTQ issues is exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, relationship styles much more flexible. And mm-hmm. where do you see things going? Do you mm-hmm. do you feel that we're in a good moment sexually? That things are moving in the right mm-hmm. direction? Um, I, I think I don't think we're in a good moment. I do think that there, that a lot of progress has been made. So, for example, even at our scientific conferences, where um, I'm seeing researchers really make efforts to be much more inclusive than they had in the past. So, mm. for example, if they do a study and they had only five percent of their participants who were non-binary, they would just exclude them in the mm. past. And now there's a real effort to recognize the the voices of of everyone. And I think that's really positive. Um, Even if in one study, the sample size of non-binary folks is very small across multiple studies, you know, the story starts to emerge. So I think that's really positive. Um, I think seeing much more research, trying to understand sexuality and the nuances of sexuality and the ways to cultivate it has also been really, really good. We're a long way off from being anywhere near satisfying. I mean, we, we have high rates of sexual problems. The big British Natsal survey, you know, is telling us that lots and lots of young people are struggling with sexual concerns. Um, there's, of course, the, the twinge data showing that people are having sex on average seven fewer times per year now than they were 20 years ago. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's because they're having more empowered sex. And so they're saying no to sex they don't want. Um, but there's probably also another interpretation, and that is that people are struggling in their sexuality. Um, they're struggling to find partners because mm. so much of, his, of it is online, the sort right. of courting process of meeting someone and being attracted to them and going up to them um, is getting lost, mm-hmm. is getting lost. So, you know, I think, I think we're heading in the right direction. I think ultimately we need better sex education. And, you know, I'm in Canada and I'd like to think that things are better in Canada than they are in the U.S. They're really not. You know, we have some provinces where sex education is, is 
satisfactory. And then we have provinces like Ontario, which, uh, you know, with the new premier who's Trump's younger brother, um, he's not really Trump's younger brother, but he could be, um, has reverted the sex education curriculum back to a 1950s model. Really? So there's no discussion of genitals. There's no discussion of pleasure. There's no dis- There's not even discussions about consent. It really is like a prehistoric model. Where do you think so, that comes from, that impulse, that anti-abortion, yeah. anti-sex yeah. ed? Yeah. I mean, I just this book I just finished writing. There's a section comparing um, Dutch sex ed to U.S. Yeah, <laughs> you, you imagine oh, how that if, works. If we could just have the Dutch or the Scandinavian yeah. system, we'd yeah. all be in a lot better place. It's amazing, and it's so demonstrably superior in yeah. terms of STD yep. transmissions and teen pregnancy yep. and abuse and every. It's yep. clearly superior. Yeah. Um, and what we're doing in the states with the abstinence only is just a ridiculous there's yeah. no data yeah. s- supporting it at all so w- what is that impulse i have trouble understanding it i know old angry white men want to control yeah. women's bodies in some weird indirect way through legislation but yeah. i don't really get it yeah i mean that's the o- the overarching explanation is the legacy of patriarchy Right. Yeah. And the, but why would the, men want women to be more sexual? Well, and that's where the details get lost. And there's a real disconnect between the decision makers and the scientists. Hmm. So the science is very clear. When you put condom machines in school, you reduce unwanted pregnancies. There's no impact on making young people be more sexually active. Right. The HPV vaccine does not make people promiscuous, right? right. It, it, in fact, it, it, it's related to better conversations around consent, more agency, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a real disconnect in the, in the abundant available data and the decision makers who are legislating sex education or removing sex education programs. Um, and you know, it probably extends beyond sexuality. I think we see it in other, you know, it's like folks who ignore climate change. <laughs> it's yeah. not a thing. Well, look at the data. You know, the data are pretty compelling that yeah. it is that, that we have, you know, reason to be concerned about climate change. But wouldn't you think that men, heterosexual men would support uh, legislation that would allow women to be more sexually free. See, that's what I don't understand. It, yeah. it feel. I mean, there are all these horny guys yeah. running around going to prostitutes and you know jerking off in closets and, and yeah. harassing children and all this because they can't yeah. just sort of find an outlet. And yet their own they're supporting policies that shut down yeah. that availability. I just don't understand. So maybe someone needs to make that that link for them that by having safe and accessible abortion, by having contraceptive free and universally available, they will benefit, <laughs> right? So that's, that's a story that has to be told, and yeah. someone you know articulate and smart enough can convince them to to do that. But yeah, maybe that's ultimately what. Or maybe is they're needed. too old and angry now. They're not going to. I mean, when I when I give talks and to young people, I especially young men, I always try to end with that point. Yeah. Like, guys, you want yeah. women to be more sexual. Yeah. You need to make them feel safe yeah. and respected and. Yeah. Like, it's in your interest. That's right. You know? Yeah. 
male bonobos are really happy. Yes, they are. They're like your your sons in the bathtub. They're the happiest, bathtub. right? They they're, are the happiest. They're the lowest stress, you yeah. know, totally happy. Everyone's yeah. getting laid. Like, yeah. what's the problem? Yeah. yeah. Oh, if we all could be like bonobos. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can. I mean, your sons in the bathtub sounded uh, yeah. pretty bonobo. Yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> Loving life. Um, what what kind of advice would you give? Young men listening. A lot of people listening to this podcast, uh, at least I imagine, mm-hmm. are young guys. And as you said, a lot of them are having trouble approaching yeah. women because you don't learn that. And yeah. maybe there aren't older men in their lives who are sort of modeling that behavior yeah. for them. W- what do you say to you know a 20-year-old guy who's yeah. having trouble meeting women yeah. and nervous around sexuality? Yeah. You know, first of all, you're not expected to mind read. Like, you're not expected to know a partner's likes and preferences. Mm. And that includes in general, but in particular, sexually. Yeah. Um, and the conversation of consent can actually be really sexy. Asking a person, what are you into? What do you like? Can be really, really sexy and can go a long way, not only in establishing consent, but having the kind of sex that's satisfying to both of you. Um, And so for the person who's on the receiving end, whether it's a girl or a woman or whomever, um, that's what they want. They want to have these conversations. Um, You know, the data tell us that people are, they spend more time having sex than they do talking about sex. Mm. And so we need to be showing up for sex through mindfulness. We need to be talking about it if we're going to be doing it. So I really want to normalize, you know, and, and encourage the conversation right and not being afraid so set anxiety aside just say you know anxiety is this thing i carry it with me don't let it stop you um you know and i and i think that the romantic part of me um says you know i think we've really lost just the whole art of courtship and conversation and attraction Mm. and talking to one another um, that there seems to be so much pressure to mm. rush to sex right away, yeah. and, and people may not even be wanting to do that. Even so. the guys aren't really yep. wanting to do that, but I, th- I, I think there are these expectations. I think what you know what you said is so important. A lot of young men, and, and I was the same way. They act. How do I say this? It's you're supposed to know what she wants, yeah. and so by asking her what she wants you're you think you look stupid right. or like you're inexperienced or whatever it's the opposite it's the opposite asking Completely. a woman what she wants is a sign of great self-confidence yeah and interest and that, interest, I, that right. i'm interest i'm so interested in you that i'm going to set aside all my past experiences and find out what do you like what are you into right because I really want to please you. Right. Right? And that's You're and that's unique. super sexy and it's validating. So cool. Yeah. yeah. And and but it's the opposite of what guys think they're supposed Completely. to do. Yeah. Well there you there you have it, gentlemen. You got an old dude and a young sex researcher woman. We agree on that. Be curious, be open, and uh, you'll come across as much sexier than if you act like you already know. Are there places that people can go to read your research? I know you you have your own website at the institution here. Where can people find you? 
Yeah, so a lot of the science that I mentioned about mindfulness and sex is described in my book called Better Sex Through Mindfulness, published in 2018 by Greystone. Um, Description of all the research we're doing, including all the papers that we've published, can be found at my research website, which is www.brottolab.com. Brotto, B-R-O-T-T-O, lab.com. Yeah, and on Twitter, Dr. Lori Brotto. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, kids. Hope you enjoyed that. I guess you can see why this was a good episode to uh, to begin the Lilo sponsorship with. Uh, great way to show that you're curious and open-minded is to present your lover, if your lover is a woman, with a vibrator. They're also Lilo also sells stuff for guys. Um, so even if your lover is a guy, you might want to consider it. Again, the link is Lilo, L-E-L-O dot T-O forward slash Ryan for 15% off any full, all full price items, your entire order. Thank you for listening to this strange segue from vibrators to my mom, but sometimes that's the way it goes. So here's mom talking about stuff you can order from her in the garage, and then you'll have the beautiful, wonderful, amazing Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm, which is a song, strangely, not only about you're going to die one day, but about desire and how death and desire have this strange, beautiful dance. Hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening to this podcast. Catch you next time. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Run.
to the ground. 